Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. If you would join me in standing in reverence of the reading of God's word. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word, may we do so humbly. Father, may we do so in a protective way, that we would not let the birds come down and snatch the seeds from our minds and from our souls, whether that be distractions around us or our own self-justifications. And Father, I ask that you would reveal to us what we need to know, help us to let pass by our ears what is not needed for this moment in our lives. Do so with humility. Father, by your grace, may we become one step closer to looking like your son, Jesus. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, The title of my sermon today is Not Your Hallmark Religion, Hallmark with a copyright symbol after it. A bloody inheritance and a new creation. The Not Your Hallmark Religion, a bloody inheritance, and a new creation. There's really one main point between this passage and next week. So I'm really going to preach it like a part one and a part two. This week's part one, next week part two in the next passage. There's really one main point. The main point has kind of been the main point of Hebrews. Once again, Jesus is superior. He is beyond. He is supreme to everything that has come before him. The two sub-points, you see those represented in my title, a bloody inheritance and a new creation. Okay, the two sub-points, this week will be part one, this bloody inheritance, next week we'll talk about this new creation, starting in verse 23 next week. Now, instead of having a really long intro like I typically have, I'm going to go ahead and give my intro a point. It's a bloody religion. That's point number one, a bloody religion. Hebrews 9, verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So you have this like superiority of Christ mentioned here in this, the beginning here, like that's, that's the point of, of these passages and, and really the book of Hebrews. 
And then you have this inheritance talked about since a death has occurred. Now, if you understand the context, uh, just the next few verses, this death is described as blood over this, blood over that, blood over this, blood over that. You see, the blood of Christ himself, his blood, his very blood, not the blood of bulls or goats, but his very blood, has secured a promised eternal inheritance and a new creation. A promised eternal inheritance and a new creation. What we see here is blood, 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 and more blood in the verses that follow. But I think we have to recognize the current or the stream, the flow of the stream at which we are swimming in. The reality is, is that a bloody Christianity was put out to pasture many decades ago. It's too gruesome. It's too barbaric. It's too harsh. It's not gentle. It's unkind. Our world doesn't like the idea of this bloody religion. Why blood? Why is it a bloody religion? Why is that important? Death is why it was important. Death was the penalty and is the penalty for breaking God's covenant. Period. There's no plan B. There's no other option. It's either life faithfully in the covenant or death from breaking the covenant. Those are the two choices. It shows us, the blood shows us that sin cannot just be set aside. It has to be dealt with. It can't just be shoved under the rug. It can't just be ignored. It can't just be, let's become better people. Sin has to be dealt with. Any sin, even a single sin, requires death. Why? Because God is infinitely holy. So any transgression against an infinitely holy God is an infinite transgression. I know that's hard for us to fathom because we tend to compare someone's transgression to our own holiness. And the chasm there is usually not very great, even though you might think it is. It's not very great. Coupled with the fact that we have a very poor understanding of the holiness of God. So we don't understand that just, just that little white lie is an infinite transgression against an infinitely holy God. It's that big of a deal. My question would be, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you leading your families, husbands, to believe that? Or do you let them slide in their sinfulness? Because it makes it easier for you to let yourself slide. So what does death, transgression, and blood have to do with each other? Well, blood represents life. I mean, that should be pretty apparent to us. But if you need a proof text, Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, blood represents life. So therefore, when sin happens, 
it requires death, so blood is spilt that represents the death happening. The animal dies. As someone said, I think it was yesterday, there's no going back. Once the animal's dead, it's dead, and the blood is spilt. Death has happened. Why blood? Since any sin is worthy of death, and blood represents life, only blood can make atonement for sins. So why don't we want a bloody religion? Why is the stream pressing against that? We have to recognize that if we're to persevere like Hebrews is calling us to do. So what's going on around us and what's infiltrated even some of our homes and church? Why do we just want a hallmark religion? Because a bloody religion says the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is we are terrible sinners in need of a great redemption. Any sin, just one, requires infinite death, absorbing the wrath of God for all of eternity, never quenching the thirst of God's wrath. And on top of that, think about this. If the only blood that could satisfy God's wrath for your sin is the eternal Son of God. What does that say about the debt that you and I owe or owed? We had a greater debt than the federal government. And you and I have a greater debt towards God than the debt of the person who has offended you the most. Because of the greatness of our sin, only the best redemptive work would do. You could say, make redemption great again. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. There is a type of Christianity that's really not Christianity at all, even though it flies underneath that, uh, that nomenclature or that naming and branding but it's a type of Christianity that's been severed, as one person said, from the nourishing bloody root of which it must be attached to. He goes on to say, that root that this true Christianity must be attached to, that root is the root of sin and guilt and judgment and wrath meets blood and suffering and atoning sacrifice. It's the root where the crushing eternal guilt of a lawless humanity and the crushing weight of divine wrath for it, a furious holy God, runs headlong into the unimaginable grace of divine self-sacrifice through blood payment. In our immediate context, verse 22 it says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Apart from the blood, there is no Christianity. And how many churches around us do not preach the blood? Without the blood, there is no Christianity. 
But you see, a bloody Christianity is an in-your-face Christianity, right? Because what's the blood saying? The blood speaks that our need is greater than you and I even comprehend right now. The blood speaks to how great that need is. It's in our face. It's an all-up-in-our-business Christianity. It's a high-pressure Christianity. It's a high-cost Christianity. It's an all-or-nothing Christianity, and it's an offensive Christianity. Why? Because it's a bloody Christianity. The blood says that you and I deserve death. And our world, and even our own flesh, does not like that reality. Now, I think many of us in this room, if not most, would be like, all right, I get that. I, I, a bloody Christian, I get that. Like, it, the blood speaks. It speaks a couple words, but it first speaks of our utter helplessness, right? It first speaks about that, about the status of our, of our flesh and our need. It also speaks of a redeemer. We'll get to that in a moment. It speaks a better word, as the song says. But at the beginning, it says of our reality. That's why you see in this picture, in this passage, blood over this and blood over that and blood. That's painting the picture for us. And then ultimately needing the blood of Jesus paints an even deeper picture for us. So if most of us in this room would not like deny that reality, how do we functionally show that we do not want a bloody religion? Where might you and I who want to follow Jesus be in danger of not wanting a bloody religion that he's talking about here? Again, I mean, none of us are going around saying, well, I just don't want a bloody religion. Well, let me give you an example where we all could be in danger, myself included. I love it in this church, I, along with the other leaders, get many compliments on how they love that the preaching and the discipleship in general gets to the nitty-gritty of sin. Like, it, it, it gets in there. Like, I've even heard people say, like, I'm thankful when, when, when the preaching gets right over the target of my soul. Like, right where, the, right where the sin is sitting at. And, and I genuinely love that, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the people who are thankful for that. And I'm thankful for that kind of teaching and preaching and leading discipleship in my own life. But honestly, what I've begun to think every time I hear that, I think this. Yeah, you say that you like it now, but just wait until we get right over the sin in your life that you don't want to give up. Then we will see if you like it. You see, we're all fine as long as it's over other people's sins or it's over the sins that are convenient for us to repent of. When the blood isn't getting too bloody, when the blood isn't speaking to those sins, 
But when I or whenever any other leader starts lobbing bloody grenades right over the sins that you and I don't want to deal with or don't think we need to deal with, then all of a sudden we've got every excuse in the world. Google becomes your best friend. Consider with me the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 21 through 22. Looking at him, the rich young ruler, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, let's back up, let's let's not miss this, showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Listen, Jesus was right over the target. How do we know? Because what was truthful, what was the true status of this man's soul was revealed. It says, but he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Do you see that? Jesus got right over the deepest target of this man's soul. The blood at this point got a little too close. The blood was speaking a truth about his life that he did not want to hear. And he went away sad. He went away sad. If the rich man could leave a review, I wonder what he would say about Jesus. You see, the blood speaks of the depth of our need. All of our entire being needs to be cleansed by the blood. There's not a square inch of you and I that does not need to be under the blood. And when a part of our life gets exposed that needs to be under the blood, the worst thing you can do is reject it and walk away sad thinking you've won the day. And yet, so often in all of our lives, we, when it gets too bloody, we, like the rich man, walk away sad, unwilling to repent for the thing that has become most dearest to us. And we are all in danger of doing such. But true Christianity is indeed a bloody Christianity. The blood tells us that there is nothing worthy in us. Nothing that could merit the favor of Almighty God and that all our works, apart from His grace, are evil. But the blood doesn't just say that. The blood also tells us that it pleased the Father to tread out the wine by crushing his son to redeem his people. To pay for the sins of his people. Listen, when the bloody grenades start hitting the deeper and darker targets of your soul, the sins that you don't really want to deal with or don't think are an issue, when you let the blood speak to those parts of your life, then and only then will you and I know with deepest delight the amazing mercy of God.
And only then will we know the deep pleasure of rich forgiveness that will set you free. Only then. As long as you're protecting that little target, as long as you're keeping it hidden, you're saying, I don't, I don't need God's forgiveness in there. I don't need God's mercy in there. But when you confess those things, saying the, the, this bloody religion, it is my only hope, then you will know this deep, rich, abiding mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. It's only, you see, here's why. It's only this bloody Christianity that can purchase this promised eternal inheritance. It's only that that is worthy to pay the debt. There is no promised eternal inheritance apart from this promised or this bloody religion. Hebrews 9, verse 15, again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, we don't know, just admittedly, we walk into this saying, well, well, like, what's an inheritance? Isn't that just something that wealthy people give to their trust fund babies? Isn't that what an inheritance is? We've grown up in a world where parents don't see any obligation to leave their kids much of anything. We have a mindset of, I've earned it, they can go earn their own. Or, I've earned what I got, it's mine to spend how I want. Instead of realizing that every dollar I waste is a dollar I'm stealing from the inheritance of my children and great-grandchildren and so on. Another limitation when it comes to like inheritance that we bring to this table, some baggage we bring, is we only think of it as money. It certainly includes money. Do not mishear me. But what about land, space, spiritual inheritance, mental inheritance, emotional inheritance, a worldview inheritance? It should be all of those things. And I can hear the bells ringing now. There Matt goes again being legalistic. Proverbs 13, 22a, I'll let him say it. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. There it is. A good man. You know, righteous, like someone who's doing it right, leaves an inheritance to his children. So we, we walk into this like this is a promised eternal inheritance, but, but what is it? you got to throw away that garbage and that baggage and hear, hear what he has to say about this inheritance and then let this fill in this knowledge for you. First of all, it's, it's only to the called. It's only to, it's only for the called. Sounds a little bit like Jesus here. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, calls him, brings him. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this eternal promised inheritance is not for anybody but the called. Now, of course, we don't know who the called are, but we will on the day that we get to heaven, right? Oh, I didn't know you were here or coming. That's a surprise. Jesus' blood certainly was enough. Wow. The elect are in view here, to those called. Next, it's an eternal inheritance. 
It's an eternal inheritance, meaning it's, it's a lasting inheritance. It's an inheritance that cannot be ruined by the government. It's an inheritance that cannot be stolen from your neighbor. It's an inheritance that you can't ruin. That you can't do anything to mess up. Now you can trade it in. I'll get that to that in a moment in a minute. But if it's yours, it's yours. It's lasting. It will not fade. It also means that it's worth so much more than any of the temporal things that you're trying to grasp a hold of right now. Any and all of them. It's worth more than those friends. It's worth more than that reputation. It's worth more than a career. It's eternal. It cannot be touched. It cannot be taken away. Next, it's a promised inheritance. It's a promised inheritance. Now let's dig a little bit deeper than, quote, God made us a promise, end quote, woohoo. This is a reference back to Abraham. God promises to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Right? So this precedes the Mosaic law. And we know from Galatians 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, uh, heirs according to the promise. Now, I think it's something special for us to note, but don't get lost in the weeds here, okay? Something for us to note. This promise, so this promise, eternal inheritance, is referring back to Abraham. I guess for you it's this direction. Referring back to Abraham which precedes the Mosaic Covenant, which is where we get the law. So this promised eternal inheritance precedes the Mosaic Covenant, which is the giving of the law. So he says back here, before the law comes, he's saying, I am making a promise that of your offspring and the descendants after them, I will be their God and they will be my people. It precedes this dreaded law that many of us don't know what to do with. We're working on that. Now, why did God bring the law covenant through Moses? He knew that we would fail, right? Just like when he put the tree in the garden. He knew that Adam and Eve would fail. Why why did he do it? Here's why. Because the law establishes man's need for grace. The law shows us the character of God, which shows us the chasm between God and ourselves, which shows us our desperate need for God's grace. Our desperate need for unmerited help. Because we could never earn it on our own. The law shows us that. So he makes this promise that I'm going to do regardless of the law and regardless of what happens in in human history, I'm going to work this out. Then he gives us the law to show us how badly we're going to need his working out that promise. Someone said this, in other words, God gave the law with Christ in mind. Only the death of Christ could release sinners from the curse of the law 
And it was to offer that pardoning grace that Jesus came. So, so when you hear this like promised eternal inheritance, you need to bring that luggage in with you to this inheritance that you and I get. He promised this pre-law, but the law is a part of working out that promise. So what's the content of the inheritance? As someone said, Jesus is the firstborn. He gets the farm. He gets everything. And our uniting with him means we get everything. All that is Jesus's is ours. We don't get it on our own. We don't get our share. We get it all in him. What do you think Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth? What's he mean? And then later, Paul says in Ephesians that the entire earth is going to be made a footstool to Jesus. What's it mean in earlier in Hebrews when, he, when we talk about how Christ will inherit all things? Put those things together. What's he saying? He's saying that the eternal inheritance for his people means we get it all. We get it all. We get freedom from the condemnation of sin. We get everlasting life. And we get all of creation. It's all ours. We're given the creator himself. And he's given us creation itself. It's ours. The meek shall inherit the earth. Don't put a bunch of caveats on the end of that. Don't make it just spiritual. It certainly is spiritual. But we get everything without the debt and all the brokenness, I might add. Now, the problem with us and this promised eternal inheritance is, is simply this. There's an obstacle. The obstacle is what? Sin. Sin. The obstacle is sin. Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's that simple. The obstacle to the inheritance is sin. No forgiveness of sins. No eternal inheritance. Period. Well, what is sin? According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and according to my daughter, if you ask her, sin is any want of conformity or transgression thereunto the law of God. It is any want of conformity or transgression thereunto the law of God. What's it mean? It's anytime you fail to meet God's standard. That's sin. Now, there's original sin that we get imputed to us from Adam that we're born with. And then there's the sin that you and I commit every day. Sin, sin all around. But the blood of Jesus pays the price for those sins and the inheritance 
is ours. Does that, like, does that strike any of you like right now? Like, he pays the debt for all of that, and then all of this is ours. He pays the debt for all of our sin, and then we get all of this inheritance. Like, our mind should be thinking, oh my gosh, amazing grace, oh my gosh, what mercy. Oh man, I don't deserve that, but God's given it to me. It's mine. What an amazing gift. But, but let's not... Take this, like, okay, so I've got this amazing debt. Jesus pays this amazing debt with, with his amazing sacrifice. Let's not miss the broader context of Hebrews. The point of Hebrews is perseverance. It's being immovable. It's persevering in the faith. So we need to understand that in the midst of this, you need to persevere in the faith, we got to understand that this inheritance, if we're not careful, we could trade it for a bowl of soup. Let me read Genesis 25, verse 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright Sell me your inheritance, right? Sell me your inheritance now. Esau said, I'm about to die, and what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob, saw, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So let me ask you this question. What are you trading or are you tempted to trade your inheritance for? What are you tempted to trade it for? Now let me remind you of what our inheritance is. Jesus, the firstborn, he gets the farm. He gets everything. Our uniting with him means we get everything. The meek shall inherit the earth. Some of us fight more for that because we actually believe it. God is, through the new covenant, giving us everything. Everything. Again, the creator himself, and he's giving us creation itself. Now, now listen, I'm going to give some examples of where we might be tempted to trade in our inheritance. I'm going to lob some grenades. Some of you need to learn how to duck and let it hit the person behind you, okay? Some of you need to stand up and take it in the chest. Some of us are toying with trading our inheritance for an easy, bloodless Christianity. Just when the blood of Christ through your discipleship is seeping down into the deepest parts of your soul, magically, 
you've got some excuse to ignore it. Some excuse not to hear it. How do you think that happened? You think, you think maybe your flesh or the devil could have like just given you that thought? Like just, ah, but, but no, 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 I don't need that. And ah, no, no, no. But they said so and so, so I don't need to listen to this. And Some of us are trading our inheritance for things like a career success. Now listen, I want you, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful with making lots of money, having a successful career. We should want that for God's people. That's, that's an amazing thing. The difference is, is don't trade it, don't trade your inheritance for your career. You can have both. You can have your cake and eat it too. Don't trade it. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can have both. Let me speak to you men for a moment, specifically. Some of you are trading in your inheritance for your wife's bowl of soup. <laughs> ben thought that was funny. We can use a little less levity in here for a moment. I'm about to take it down a notch. Some of you men, because you're unwilling to say no to your wife when she is sinning, because you're unwilling to do the hard work of instructing her, or because you're living in the consequences of your terrible leadership thus far and not wanting to do anything about it, you're going to trade in your inheritance for some fleeting moments with your bride. Or you're going to trade in your kid's inheritance for some fake peace or false intimacy in your marriage. Listen, man, we have got to wake up. Man, I could say something similar to the, on the flip side of this too. But listen, man, you will reap what you are sowing right now. And some of you are reaping a harvest that is beautiful and plentiful. Some of you are reaping a weed-overtaken garden, and you're trying to find someone else to blame for it. Listen, I told you Christianity was a bloody religion. Hopefully you believed me when I said that earlier today. There's the picture, the blood over everything. Why? Because it's all been touched by sin. It all needs cleansing. Even that deepest part of our soul that we just don't want anyone to touch. And here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake. You could trade in parts of the, the portion of your inheritance for something stupid right now. You could also be trading in your perseverance. Now, I talked about that earlier, so go back to that sermon on perseverance and how that works out. Listen, it wouldn't be the first time that a woman led a man to destruction. Listen, you, you could find out in this moment, like in this string of moments, I'm trading this inheritance for this, I'm trading inheritance for this, and, and to realize that you actually, at the end of the day, you never actually had the inheritance. 
You just thought you did, so you've been trading away those sentiments. But that's why you traded away so easily, because you didn't actually have it in the first place. That's why it was so easy to give up for fake peace in your house. That's why it's so easy to give up for that career. It was so easy to give up, because you didn't have it in the first place. That's what's at stake. But let's back, let's back, back up for just a minute. The inheritance This eternal and incredible gift to us right now, and this gift for us for the future, the obstacle is sin. How does the Lord take care of that obstacle? Jesus mediates the new covenant through his death. His death. So this, this, what you, you need to connect this dot. Our great obstacle needed to be dealt with. How did God deal with it? He dealt with it by blood. Whose blood? His blood. He dealt with it. Why? Because he loves you and I that much. Why? Because he would be most glorified in doing it that way. Jesus mediates the new covenant through his death. And here we are back again to this bloody thing. Look at verse 18. 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Meaning the old covenant here. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." You're saying, well, okay, well, what's that like almost everything? Well, there, there was accommodation made for the poorest of the poor. Now, back to the rest of the, the picture here. The, the point of that, it's so easy for us just to gloss through all of this like uh, blood over this, blood over that, blood over there. What's the picture? The picture is blood over everything. The picture is every nook and cranny of your soul. The picture is, the blood is sufficient when the helicopter's right over the target. You don't have to run. The blood is right over the target. Now let me talk about this law thing here for a second. Because this law that is exposing our need for grace, and then he's telling us of the grace, it's the blood. I know many of us have terrible experiences with law and legalism, but but let me tell you something. If you will give your mind and heart to understanding the law and its proper use, like David in Psalm 1, the law will become a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. I don't don't know if you know this. this It's a side note here. There cannot be an absence of law. It is not, I'm going to live according to God's law, or I'm going to live according to grace. That's not the two options. The two options, I'll live according to God's law, or I'll live according to man's law. That's your two options. And you might think this law over here is gracious. You're just a fool. 
This law over here, understood rightly, God's law is the one that's gracious. Man's law shifts, it twists, it accommodates sin, it makes us feel better, and it condemns other people. It's shifting, it's moving, it's flaky. God's law doesn't change. It doesn't shift, it doesn't change. And he gives us the grace to live according to it. You don't have the grace to live according to man's law over here. So if you throw God's law out, it's not like there will be no law. What will happen is it's a vacuum, it's a hole that is, has a huge sucking sound that someone's law will fill it. Whether this is you personally or it's an organization or a church, if it's not God's law, then man's law will fill the vacuum. It will plug the hole. We were not created to live this way. When Adam and Eve rejected God's law, it wasn't so that they could choose grace. It was so that Adam and Eve could choose their own laws. And again, this law, indeed under the law, these things, these sins, these transgressions, are purified with blood. Your transgressions of man's law are not purified by blood. Indeed, you don't need God's blood to deal with those quote-unquote transgressions. But you need God's blood when you've transgressed against his law. And his blood is sufficient. His, His blood is enough. Listen, some of you don't experience amazing and marvelous grace because you've suppressed God's law and so therefore you don't see your need for grace. Therefore, you've not known the grace that God has given you. You've taken the law that was written with Christ in mind and you've said, man, that's just, it's just too much. I just don't like it. When it was written to show you your need for grace, and as you know your need for grace, you will see how greatly it has been filled. So in 18 through 23, we have this shadow worship thing going on. If you don't know what I'm talking about, by shadow and that, go back a couple sermons ago. We have the shadow worship. Almost everything was sprinkled with blood and purified with blood. Why? Again, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The old covenant was the shadow covenant of, what, of the heavenly covenant that was already intact just hadn't come to fulfillment for our eyes to see it yet. But the old covenant is the shadow. The full reality of the thing was in heaven. As someone said, on earth we had a shadow priest doing shadow worship in a shadow tabernacle. All of these things, an earthly copy of the heavenly realities that Jesus would come and accomplish. And what he accomplished is nothing short of our eternal inheritance. Now, 
I have two final things I want you to grasp. First is this. It is first and foremost Jesus' inheritance, not ours. That's important. It is first and foremost Jesus' inheritance, not ours. What I mean by that is it's not ours by virtue of any merit on our own, but only on the merit of Christ. It's His. He earned it, not you and I. Then when we, by faith, trust in Him and His meritorious work, then and only then does the testament become ours. The last will and testament. And that's the, the language here being used. Now let me ask you this question. So, so Jesus inherits the earth. It's all his. Like it, it's, it's, it, but it can't become ours until the person who wrote the testament dies. Right? You see that in the language there? For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. I mean, what good is a will when the person's alive? Like if we're talking about the passing on of the inheritance. Now, certainly you can go ask for that inheritance, and like the prodigal child, you can take it and run. But, but, but the point of, of a will is, to, is, is when I pass on, when I die, the will takes effect, and my inherit, what I had now becomes yours. That's the great picture here, that Jesus, when he dies, and our faith in that work as the conduit through which it flows, this last will and testament of our Lord concerning his inheritance becomes ours, ours. It's his by his work. And then as we are united with him, it becomes ours. Let me give you this last. I want to read to you from Charles Spurgeon. For, for to those who are listening that are truly redeemed, let me read you these words from Spurgeon. Recollect, or recollect that these things are yours, not because you are this or that, but because the blood makes them yours. The next time Satan says to you, you do not believe as you ought, and therefore the promise is not sure, tell him that the sureness of the promise lies in the blood and not in what you or in what, uh, what you are or what you are not. There is a will proved in heaven's court of probate whose validity depends upon its signatures and upon its witnesses and upon its being drawn up in proper style. The person to whom the property is left may be very poor, but that does not overthrow the will. He may be very ragged, but that does not upset the will. He may have disgraced himself in some way or another, but that does not make the will void. He who made the will and put his name to the will makes the will valid and not the person to whom the legacy was left. And so with you, this covenant stands secure. This will of Christ stands firm. 
and all your ups and all your downs and all your successes and all your failures, you poor, needy sinner, have nothing to do but to come and take Christ to be your all in all and put your trust in Him. And the blood of the covenant shall make the promises sure to you. Christianity is bloody. It isn't your hallmark religion. We pray. Dear Father, I, pr- I pray that as we, as the blood seeps down into those hidden spots, those hardened spots of our soul, I pray that we would not resist. Father, I pray that as this trinket in our inner man, as this vessel in our inner man, as this robe in our inner man, as this table in our inner man gets sprinkled with blood, that we would not reject it. Instead, that we would say, oh, Lord, yes, please, wash every part of me then. May we not be like Peter and say, well, let me go wash myself first. But let us say, Jesus, pour the whole vessel on us, for I am a man of unclean lips. Father, give us that kind of humility. Uh, Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the religion of the blood that you've given us. May we walk in it with boldness and confidence and humility for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.